Season two of Love and Context podcast welcomes you. Get ready for engaging unscripted conversations with your hosts, Ben and Spencer. Our mission remains unchanged to explore the Bible through the powerful lens of love. In this new season, we'll embark on a journey together, unearthing fresh insights and gaining deeper understanding of how we can love God and live out our faith in practical ways. So let's dive into this season of Love and Context, where love and the context of the Bible intersect to transform our lives. Welcome to the Love and Context podcast with Ben and Spencer. I'm Ben. I'm Spencer. And you are re-welcoming in, or you are re-welcoming. That's not even a phrase. That's not even a phrase. <laughs> I'm probably going to leave that in just because it's great. We are re-welcoming our friend, our really good friend, that definitely doesn't snap her fingers at me to try to get my attention, <laughs> no. Pastor Sarah. It's, it, no, it's, it's it, in the context of the statement we were doing, she absolutely deserved to snap her fingers at me. Yeah. <laughs> and- I, and let's be honest, what did you do, Benjamin? I was a child. I was a smart aleck. <laughs> yeah. Also, so let's just be honest. I mean, if somebody snaps their fingers, I'm going to look. Like, I can't help it. And I was like, ooh, sounds, you know? I, I don't think I have ADHD, but I definitely do. Like, when people make, like, random sounds, I have to look. Yeah. My wife's legitimately made this comment before where she's been like, oh, you're giving me a C and Sarah's? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, great. I don't take care of you. I don't have to take care of you. <laughs> she's like, she'll take care of that for me. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, dear. Yeah, bang. She's like, somebody will keep you in line. Yeah. Uh, I want to receive that and hear that and love that that I just have good leadership skills sure. is what I'm hearing. You do. Okay. That's what I'm hearing. You do have good leadership <laughs> skills, but that may or may not have been how that statement was directed. <laughs> it's, it's more two, thing, two things that can be true. fashion translation. Is, <laughs> sorry. The comment towards my immaturity and my wife being like, oh, great. Someone's going to keep you online. Once hour. Oh, man. We're glad you're back here because, one, it's always hilarious. We actually, this is the second time through this part of the podcast because our recording failed the first time. So we are real practiced at this. Real practice. They're, they're going to listen to be like, this doesn't feel well practiced. <laughs> <laughs> so we have been doing our mini series through women in the Bible and how is God using them? How is he forwarding them? How is he forming men and women together to push forward the kingdom of God? And all throughout the series, we have been overemphasizing women on purpose mm-hmm. because they have been de-emphasized in church culture mm-hmm. by and large, especially over the last 400 years. Yeah. Okay. This week, we're going to be out of the Bible because we finished up the New Testament last week with Jamie. Mm-hmm. And we talked about all these people in the New Testament. I talked about Priscilla and Dorcas. And I love that name, Dorcas, by the way. Tabitha, she's probably like up in heaven and be like, can you just call me Tabitha? <laughs> yeah. But we talked about all these women and what God is doing and how they were disciples and apostles and heralds. And, and they were doing all the work that God was putting on for mm-hmm. Paul and for Barnabas and for all these people who were working in the New Testament church. Mm-hmm. And about how it was actually men and women coming together and this repeated refrain of men and women, men and women, men and women. It is not either or, it's both and. Yeah. And last week's episode, we just like skimmed the surface. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, skipped a, we skipped a stone. Yeah. Because there's only so much we can talk about in, you know, 45 to hour and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. I can talk really fast, but I can't talk that fast. Mm-hmm. So this week we are jumping into women in church history. Yeah. This is not necessarily going to be in chronological order. It's kind of going to be all over the place. But we tried to, I, I did research on this a little bit. I did research on this. And the more that I, I spent time looking into it, the more that I was like, there are so many stories, like so many stories. Yeah. It is shocking to me how little of church history we really know. I think sometimes maybe we know the history of our denomination. But we don't necessarily know the history of the church, mm-hmm. which is interdenominational, right? Mm-hmm. For a lot of the Protestants, do you know Catholic church history? The good parts, not just the parts that you want to hold up to talk about why they're wrong? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of church history. There's a lot of church history. And a lot of the fights and the arguments and the stupid things that we're dealing with today have been done. Have been going on for millenniums. Yes. That's so true. You know, crazy does to say millenniums and it to actually be true. For it to be true. Yeah. 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 So first person we want to talk about is a lady by the name of uh, Perpetua. She was alive in 8181 to 203. So she's the first female African martyr in the early church. Born in Carthage, North Africa. She lived at the time in Rome when uh, Christians were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. So accepting Jesus or becoming Jewish was punishable by death. 
Uh, this is very much in the line of the pinch of incense and like those that type of thing that's going on in this time period, though not necessarily pinch of incense. So she was baptized and she was eventually arrested for her faith, but she refused to be called by anything else than a Christian. Her father actually came and she he brought her son, her infant son, and he begged her to recant her faith, but she refused to recant her faith. She's like, I can't recant things that are true. And even for the sake of my son, which is, I mean, just a heart-wrenching thing as parents. But I'm not going to lie about reality because, I, like, in a lot of ways, that's betraying my son even more. Yeah. So she's actually thrown in the arena with a bunch of other people that are supposed to be attacked by wild animals and killed and mauled and, you know, for entertainment. But after a while, the animals don't kill them. So they eventually sent in people with swords and they actually executed her. She's one of the first martyrs. I, I do think we have a little bit of a Daniel thing going on here. Yeah. Where God is looking at the situation. They're like, we're going to send in wild animals and these tigers and these lions, and these bears. Like, man, they're just going to eat them up. And then God's like, don't do that. Yeah. Like, we're, we're going to make a statement here. If you if you want to take her life, you got to take her life. Martyrs is such a such an important part of our, our story that we have to remember. Like, we got we to gotta remember because... If you're going to preach the word and you're actually going to live the word, like dying for the word is, is a significant part of your faith. Yep. When you say yes to Jesus and you refuse to say no, even in the face of death, that is a preacher. Yeah. That is a gospel bearing preacher. Somebody who's willing to bring the kingdom of God, no matter what it costs. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of people that turn the world upside down. Absolutely. I actually have to agree with you on that because... I think you have to. I have to. I have to, Ben. It kills me. I wasn't going to, but you made a good point finally. <laughs> but I do think it's the lives of the martyrs mm -hmm. that shift something. And to be honest with you, you would be surprised if you heard that a small town girl like me who had the opportunity to meet Elizabeth Elliot. Mm -hmm. Now, when I say Elizabeth Elliot... If you're in the Christian circles and you've learned about missionaries, mm -hmm. this should be a name that you put up next to Corey Ten Boom and and you think about the heroic acts that were done. And I remember being a small child and my parents were still married, so I was under the age of 11 and she came part of Billy Graham's crusade mm -hmm. stuff that was happening in the early 90s here. And she came to our school and her story forever changed me of the martyred life of her husband along with the other men and at the hands of the Inca Indians. Mm -hmm. And that story of bravery, that story of to, to sit across from a widow as a young child and realize that she never lost her faith in God over that. It was seeds for me mm -hmm. to see that when we bear the testimony of God, that it's going to come with some really big things, maybe seeing our Savior sooner than our family members want us to. Or it's also going to come at um, a price where we know that we have to go into the ends of the earth mm -hmm. and risk our lives. So martyrs can't be overlooked. They're so right. important. Well, I think the the flip side of that is we're supposed to go where God calls. Yeah. And God may call you to be a faithful worker and generate money to send out to missions mm -hmm. all your life. He may never call you to put your life in danger, but he does call you to work hard, to grow, to grow wealth, to share it, to move it, to take care of people around you, to take care of the poor, the hungry. And you may never actually go out in the field, but it depends on what your call is, mm -hmm. you know? And like a lot of times, especially in America, where you have a lot of opportunity. God can use the opportunity of America for you to bless the world for the gospel. It's not for you. It's for those around you. And it's not any less of a calling. It's not our life. It's his. And he gets to tell us what to do with it. And so I, I think about sometimes like this conversation where people talk about, I really liked Dominique was here. She was talking about people like, I really want to serve God wherever he leads. Oh, Alaska doesn't have a mall. You know, mm -hmm. you don't have a, you don't have a, a big six available, you know, mm -hmm. that's a sporting goods store, by the way, in case I know you're a small town girl. So, you know, just, make just a small town. <laughs> yeah. I always did that. I'm not gonna lie. But the reality is that you need to be content with whatever God calls you. And if he calls us to Africa tomorrow, we go to Africa tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We don't argue. We just go. Yeah. But we need to be in tune with God's call in our life. And so if he's calling you to the ends of the earth, you go to the ends of the earth. If he's calling you to be still and serve, then you be still and serve. And it really comes into this whole idea of that we need to learn to hear the voice of God. And there are women throughout our history mm -hmm. who've done exactly that. 
And these stories of these martyrs are people who heard the voice of God, responded, and walked it out faithfully, even to the point of death. And there are others that were faithful and walked it out the rest of their life and died of old age. Yes, yes. And there is not one that is better than the other. They're both faithful disciples of Christ, and we hold them both up in a great esteem. Mm -hmm. And we're thankful for the sacrifice of the people who are willing to bear the name even unto death. Mm -hmm. One of the early church fathers in 300 is Augustine. Oh, I love Augustine. Yeah, Augustine. Yeah. How I say it. That's fine. I listen to too much Switchfoot, so I'm like, Augustine, you know, so like in my head. So Augustine's mother was Monica. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is considered to be the driving force of his salvation. So she was born in Tungasti, North Africa, another African, right? Her faith, prayers, and Christ-like life influenced her family to become Christians, including her husband, who was a Roman pagan. Interesting. Augustine, perhaps, is best known of her children, but she had a bunch of other kids. But I don't think you can understate, like, the call, because we're talking about women in ministry. Sure. hundred percent. You also can't negate the call of motherhood. Absolutely. And what does motherhood bring about? Like actually instilling in your kids and leading them to actually be a part of what God is calling into the world. Like the, one of the most important things that we do as parents is we teach our kids to understand and recognize the person of God mm-hmm. to be in relationship because I don't want my kids just to follow what I have to say. I want them to know God because if they know God, I know that they're connected with the thing that can save them because I can't save them. Yeah. But I can introduce them to the guy who can. I, I, I actually really do like Augustine a lot. There are a couple of his writings that I've had issues with. Outside of that, he man, that guy tried real hard. In an era, he was really trying to push the kingdom forward. Oh, we've said it here before. If you are given the opportunity to speak, proclaim the gospel, <clears throat> you will speak heresy at some point. At yeah. some point. Don't judge someone who's in ministry because they said one bad thing for Uh, we can so often do that yeah um rather if you're looking for we said it last week but if you're looking for good examples to follow look for those leaders who have a repentant heart and are willing to be like hey i said this i got that wrong yeah augustine's no different i'm sure he said things that were off (laughs) absolutely i really don't want to undersell like how important parents are in the lives of their kids we were talking about the mother in this case, but mothers and fathers are really important in the lives of their kids because they model what it means to be an adult. They model what it means to have a, by the way, fathers, if you want your kids to honor and respect and cherish women, you have to, because they're going to learn that behavior from you. And if so, if you ever have a kid that grows up and you're like, man, why are they so well, there's a mirror. Let's go take a look at it. You know, a lot of the learned behavior of males, especially your boys, like my boys, uh, I, I, if I see them acting in a way, I'm like, where did they get that? And Spencer came over to me and said, you know, <laughs> that was probably, it's always Spencer. Yeah. Jumping into another person in history, there's this really cool person named Claire of Assisi, right? That wasn't her written name originally. She was born into a Italian family of high status, Italy, tons of money. She was the oldest of three girls. Her mother was religious and taught him about Jesus which impacted her and she fell deeply in love with Jesus and had a dedication to prayer. But when she was 17, she was arranged to be married to a wealthy guy married off uh, by her dad. But Claire grieved the poor in her community. And then she heard a guy by the name of St. Francis of Assisi, who you may or may not be familiar with talking about the gospel. And she was so moved that at 18, she would give up worldly possessions and she joined him at a small Catholic church within the Basilica of St. Mary in Assisi, where the Franciscan movement started and became one of uh, Francis's first followers, or we would call them disciples, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So then she founded actually the monastic religious order called the Order of Four Ladies, known as Poor Clares which, I mean, is just fantastic. I love it. It doesn't translate as well to English as it does in Italian. Yeah. Uh, so they lived their life focused on prayer, community, and joy. And when other women wanted to join the order, including her mother and sisters, Francis of Assisi made her an abbess. In other words, she was now in charge, a position she held until her death. She believed that the privileged world, the people who had wealth, she had been surrounded by, though it appeared exciting, passes like a shadow. Because your wealth isn't that important. Her legacy even to this day, Lazan, in the importance of women in the Franciscan story, right? So she's a pivotal woman in the Franciscan line. We talk about monks, we talk about, you know, abbots, we talk about, if you're not super familiar with Catholicism and, and like some of their history, then you that might just, like I said, if you're a Protestant. But she was moved by her compassion for the poor. She grew up wealthy and rejected it. Yeah. Now, w- once again, I want to point out that wealth isn't the problem. 
but when wealth rules you, it's a problem. But now they have these communities that actually go in there. They're actually servicing people and like women who want to devote their life to service to God are able to actually, we're part of this order in a place where they didn't have opportunity. Now they're able to actually devote their entire life. They're more than just getting married. They're actually devoting their entire life and being in existence to the forwarding of the gospel. Yeah. Like this is powerful. Mm -hmm. Like those are powerful stories. Yeah. I, so I had the privilege when I was going to the school of spiritual direction I had the privilege to to read a lot about the desert mother and fathers in the monastic movements mm-hmm. and, you know, Francis of Assisi. Mm-hmm. But actually, one that I really love during this time period of the desert movement and, you know, these pilgrimages happening to go out where people were giving away all of their riches and choosing a life of poverty and teaching people what confession really was and what life was like in the divine you can't help but talk about St. Teresa of Avila. And she wrote this phenomenal book on mansions of the heart that at the time for me being raised evangelical in the Mm -hmm. Pentecostal church, like I still was really struggling with a lot of reading Augustine and Francis Assisi and Ignatius. And I'm like, Ooh, this is just a little bit too much for me. But when she started giving language to what was happening in my soul as I was becoming more aware of of the divine dance, the trinity around me. She gave imagery of what it looks like as you're moving from different rooms in your house, in your heart. And it, it just gave me language. And actually, one of her mentors, I don't know if you guys know much about St. John of the Cross. I mean, I know things, but I wouldn't say that I necessarily, it's like in my recall. So he wrote a very well-known book called Dark Night of the Soul. And this is, it talks about how your soul moves from places of consolation, where you're on the highs and highs of being with God, and you're in the, then you go to desolation, the lows and lows. This book is well-known in theological circles, but he was her mentor. He was the mentor of Teresa of Avila. And when his Carmelite brothers were struggling with a lot of debauchery happening within their communities, he asked St. Teresa of Avila to come over and reform the teaching. And his Carmelite brothers were so pissed off Mm -hmm. that they hired people to come and capture him and they imprisoned him. And it was during this imprisonment that they kept coming to him and telling him, get rid of St. Teresa of Avila. We don't want a woman coming in and telling us how we should be doing things. And while he was being imprisoned by his brothers, he wrote Dark Night of the Soul, Mm. where he was saying, I will not remove her. God has called her for this work. And that story, I just remember being blessed because you mentioned my pastor Mm -hmm. and I have had a mentor in my life like that Mm -hmm. who has suffered loss in his flock because he's chosen to say, I will not deny the fact that God has a call on this woman Mm -hmm. and I'm making a way for her. So that movement, I just, I, I have to plug that in there that this monastic movement was so important because women really started being able to have a voice. Correct. Correct. And they were started, they were being seen as equals. And, well, and a lot of times they're getting an opportunity to write and distribute their writings too, which is a big, exactly, big, big move, right? Very big move. Yeah. When you talk about writers, then you have to immediately talk about Fanny Crosby, and oh, we actually have Fanny Crosby in our line. Yeah. You can, yes, we can't not talk about the fact that when there were all of these other writers writing well-known hymns, yeah, mm-hmm. here comes Fanny Crosby with Blessed Assurance. Yeah. Let's talk about Fanny Crosby. We'll just get out of line in our outline because yeah. I want to, like you mentioned her, like 600 plus. Yeah. Just a really firm grasp of poetic nature, like putting simple truths into poetic nature. Mm-hmm. Like the heart of a worship leader is on clear display in Fanny Crosby's writing. Mm-hmm. Now, the ironic thing is that a lot, sometimes people now look at her stuff and then they're like, oh, you know, like we got to go traditional, you know, blah, blah. And Fanny Crosby, I feel like with her character, she would be all about the newest music we got. Yeah. yeah. Fanny Crosby was not traditional. No, in fact, I, I I love how supportive her husband was. Yes. Because like he came in and he's the music guy. And so he'll write the music. I was like, I'm just going to support you. God is doing something great in your life. I'm going to stand right behind you and support you. Yeah. yeah. And if there are any doors that she couldn't open, he'd kick them open for her. You know? And I love that the most prolific hymn writer 
like in history is definitely a, a blind woman. I, uh, blind woman, right? Blind woman. I mean, yeah. you, you want to just talk about the faithfulness of God. I think that what was taken away from her in the brokenness of the world resulting in loss of sight, God heightened her spiritual senses, which I think is why we see such beautiful poetry in the lines that she's writing, that what she couldn't see in her humanity, I think that God awoke in her spirit to it. I don't know if you're aware of this. This is an interesting thing about Fanny Crosby is that did you know that she had both the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, what we call call the Torah, and the Gospels. Memorized. Yeah, along with many Psalms and Proverbs. Memorized. So she could just actually rip it out. Yeah. So when she's writing these these music, she's trying to ground them in theological truths. Now, I think that it's... I think that it's definitely like some of the language needs to be updated because it was written 400 years ago. But there are just like timeless truths that are in her music and poetic nature is very stirring. Mm-hmm. You know? It is. But you have to, you also have to talk about the authority that music has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially lyrically. So take Psalms, for example. Like Psalms were meant to be either prayers or songs or so on and so forth. There's actually authority that is being proclaimed through the lyrics that are being sung. This is like one of the gripes I get when people are like, women can't be pastors. I was like, there's authority being proclaimed as they're leading worship. Yeah. Spencer, that's good. So it's like, like, where do you draw the line? If you're trying to draw a line, where are you trying to draw a line? Because, because, I mean, you look at, because in theory, in theory, worship songs, pretty songs like once Fanny Crosby are writing are based in scripture. Correct. And Correct. You're singing, you're singing is proclamation of scripture. Yes. Yeah. Proclamation of scripture. Yeah. Over a congregation. Or a scriptural truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, cause sometimes, especially in worship music, I think the, the line people like, you know, it's not really, that's not in the Bible. I was like, no, but it is a biblical truth that's being proclaimed. Yes. Like the biblical truth is found in the Bible. Yeah. And they're expressing it in a way that's actually experiential to their location, like what's going on in their life. And I was like, you need to engage worship music in love and context. Mm-hmm. Like, my assumption is that the person is trying to proclaim something that God is doing in their life. And so we always need to, you know, come at it with grace. And even if it doesn't connect with me, it doesn't mean that it's a bad song. It just may not be something that I put in my church. Yeah. I'm not going to judge the person for it. It may be something that connects with their church really well, you know? Yeah, Fanny Crosby, with so many songs. So many songs. Obviously, the best well-known well-known one is Blessed Assurance because that one is just has just endured for a really long time. Though I'm not a big fan of Nine Eight, so I may have a conversation with her husband at some point. You know, um, it just it just makes things very difficult. Got to learn how to play. Yeah, for those of you that are not musically inclined, Nine Eight is a time signature that is. I mean, I can't prove it, but it's probably from the it's devil. From the devil. It has got origins from Hades. Okay, origins from Hades. I was laughing because, like, the drummer in the room was like, "Okay, nine eight, let's go." Like, uh, yeah, I know you don't care. But, yeah, trying to trying to play a, a rhythm on like, the guitar though in nine eight, not great. No, it does suck. If yeah, you, you were. Yeah, not at the same time as Fanny Crosby, but actually in uh, 1495 to 1561 was a lady by the name of Marie Dentieri. Do you know who that is? I don't. So this is during the Reformation. So she is a she's a German, was born in modern day Belgium to a wealthy family and uh, entered an Augustine nunnery in 1508. Okay, But she converted during the Reformation. Like during the Reformation, she she converts, then she flees, and she ends up in Strasbourg in 1524, where she meets her husband and she gets married. Then her and her husband are actually pastoring at this church together, pastoring, preaching, mm-hmm. both of them together during this time. And then her husband dies, and then she continues to pastor the church after he died. During the Reformation in Germany, we have a woman who is pastoring a church of like many, many people, wow. right? And she was contemporary speakers with... John Calvin. Interesting. Going to similar locations, and her writings are out there as well. She was a very influential church. You could actually read a little bit about it in, I'm going to recommend a uh, church history book that's really simple and easy to read. Uh, it's Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain English. Mm-hmm. Check that out. It'll make it a lot easier for you. It does not get into the nuance, but it's a lot easier to read. It's a great book if you're wanting like a good overview on church history. Yeah, a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 his okay. his method. Yeah, he's pretty upfront about that. Like the, the, what that's what he's doing. She was also passionate passionate for a larger woman for woman in the church, which upset Genevan authorities. Mm-hmm. Shocking, <laughs> but she's the she's actually the only woman who is named on the Reformation wall in Geneva, though. Wow, wow, isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah. 
I just love that <laughs> contemporary of Calvin. A lot of uh, people who tend to come from a, I'm going to say a traditional or reform base where they are against women being ministers, cite their roots back to the Reformation. Yeah. It's happening then. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. want to let you know that. God is always upsetting your apple cart. Yep. <laughs> you know, he's always upsetting your apple cart because that's not what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So are you familiar with a lady by the name of Margaret Felfox? No. You are not. There is a lot of women in church history, and we are literally skipping a stone. So 1614 to 1702. She is uh, married to a guy by the name of Thomas Fell, who was a wealthy lawyer and eventually justice of the peace and member of the English parliament. Okay. So she decided to use her large estate for God's service, often hosted traveling ministers. In 1652, she met George Fox, a preacher who had gained a following known as the Society of Friends, which we know today as the Quakers who had come to stay with her at the estate. Now, they impacted her so much that she started hosting meetings and fighting for religious freedom, and she started penning religious pamphlets and letters. Now, listen to the titles of these. Her famous Women Speaking Justified by the Scriptures. That's one of her books, right? When she unpacks passages from Genesis to Revelation that promote women in ministry and for equality in the sexes in the power and authority of the Spirit. In the six- we should have had, yeah, in the 1600s, we should have had her on this podcast. I, I don't know how we would have done that. We would have had a medium or something. So after her husband passed, she hosted the society meetings in her home until she was arrested in 1664 and sentenced to life in prison. She was released four and a half years later as she married George Fox. Together they traveled and preached until his death in 1691. Together they traveled. Together they traveled and preached. Yeah. I, I love that this book is from, yeah, we're, we're looking at 16, 1600s. So good. So good. And is that the second, that's the second woman on the list who has been married and co-pastored with, or essentially co-pastored with her spouse. Okay. Yeah. You know, and it's not surprising that they would partner together, right? Yeah. It also speaks not only, can we talk about your husband and how, how awesome he is? You absolutely can, because I was thinking about that in Fanny Crosby's yeah. spin. It made me think of him. It is really hard to be a woman in, woman in ministry today, because like you're very unsupported. Yep. And the people who do support you are doing the best they can to have grace with the people who don't. Because we're trying to follow the way of Jesus. <laughs> the husbands of these women... I really want to commend them for being willing to lay themselves down on their behalf. I really think that they took to heart, they take to heart when Paul says, "Husbands, you lay down your life mm-hmm. on behalf of your wives, as Christ, Christ did, did for the church." Yeah, there is a number amount of shame and degradation that comes to the men as well. I mean, you hear things like, you know, "Get your women in line." And I was like, well, first of all, you be quiet. Yeah, ask your husband or ask my husband if he's ever been asked that question. Absolutely. I guarantee he's been told that. Absolutely. Yep. I would love to hear his response, though. It's probably not appropriate for the podcast. (laughs) No, but I think, you know, when I think about, I don't want to always just focus on women, you know, that had to be married in order to make massive kingdom advancements or to talk about, you know, Teresa of Avila, that it took, Mm -hmm. you know, St. John of the Cross to really... Uh, fight for her. But I think there is something to be said that when a woman is called to maybe trail not a well-known path, that if a woman's going to have the strength to do it, that she has to know that her husband is strong enough mm-hmm. to deal with the backlash. Well, and I think this comes back to this idea of it's not women or men. It's both. And we're meant it's, to do this together. We are, we're both called. I, I have the privilege right now where we are onboarding two new interns and they are saying yes to the call. And they're in their early 20s and we're talking about some stuff. And I, w- I was letting this young person know. I said, you know, it, it's really time for you to start seeing that the answer to the call is not just you saying yes. It's actually the person that you're getting ready to get married to here shortly. Mm-hmm. And that both of you have to have the call. And is your spouse falling in with that and and seeing that their call may not be front and center like your call is? And how is that spouse going to still see that their call is maybe sitting in the back row holding a nursing baby every couple of years? Maybe now it's running the whole tech ministry. Or as you guys can attest, your wives are not silent partners in your roles in ministry, your wives are standing side by side with you. And when I think about, you know, my wife is a deacon of the church, right? Yes. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. They, they asked me and I'm like, what about Tara? 
<laughs> but that is, but thank you though, because inevitably still in this day and age, there are tables that you guys are invited to sit at that I'm not. Mm-hmm. And there's tables that my husband is invited to sit at and he's not even, you know, the pastor. And, you know, it's just really, you're going to naturally just go to him because he's the man. And Sarah, what I'm going to tell you is any table I get invited to you that you're not allowed to, I'll pull up a seat for you. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Unless it has something to do with my sense of humor, and then I'm probably going to leave you out. Okay. That, but that has nothing to do I'll with you. Trust you. you. I'll, trust, the, I'll trust you on that that decision then. That has nothing to do with you being a woman. That has something to do with my particular personality. So, <laughs> so, it's been too long since we last, so I thought I'd throw something in there. Yeah. No, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And I'm getting kind of tired of having this conversation. And so one of the reasons we do this miniseries is because we want to very be very clear and and listen, if this is a make or break moment for listening to us, like probably stop listening to us because we're going to proceed with the thought that God's going to use people regardless of their gender. Yeah. And he's going to raise people up regardless of their gender. And he's going to call them regardless of their gender. He's also going to call them regardless of their socioeconomic standing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and whether or not they're a Jew or a Gentile. I feel like there's a Bible passage about that somewhere. It's, you know, it's eluding me. It's not. Yeah. And I think too that... You know, when we look at these women in the early church history, we're really seeing hearts of humility. Yeah. We're not seeing women that are pushing agenda. And, and even when you talk about Claire of Assisi, you know, even if she formed the poor Claire's, mm. she wasn't doing that to say that women were better. She was just saying, I'm making room because we want to say yes. Yeah. And I think that's the most important thing when we're looking at all of this is that ever since the very beginning... We were all created to worship. We were all created to love God. And that's in each and every one of us, each gender, male and female. Yeah. And we all have that heart's cry. I love A.B. Simpson. He's the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. He has this really simple phrase, and I've just been saying it over and over again, because I think that's where my heart is just longing. And it says, in the heart of man, a cry. Mm. In the heart of God, supply. Right. And I've good. just been resting on those four because when we look at these women, I don't think that any of these women were like, I'm going to go do this because I can't wait to get everyone looking at me and I get to tell all the men what to do because the very first woman you talked about lost her baby. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that there have been conversations where I have been sitting on the couch weeping and that is not never a good thing when you see me crying. And my husband could probably tell you on two hands how many times he's watched me cry. And to see, to see me weeping and saying, I don't know if I can take another coup. I don't know if I can take another group coming against whether or not I, I can share what God has revealed to me in my personal study while I've been breathing and meditating on his word day and night. And I don't want to get up there. I don't want to be up there. And I think... I really wish if we could sit with some of these women and just ask them, where was the crossroad for you where you had to decide if I keep moving forward, it's for him because I don't got anything left in me. Because I think that all of these women came to a moment where society and everywhere around them was saying, step down, shut up, be quiet. And these women came to a part where they're like, okay, I'm going to lose my children. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose reputation in my community that they all came to this part where they were saying to live for Christ. I, I think you're really nailing that on the head here is they came in contact with the true gospel, which is that Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here. Yeah. It's time to come back. Yep. Those that are on the outside are being welcomed in. We talked about in the line of Jesus, there was multiple women m- mentioned mm-hmm. who had terrible stories, not great stories with the exception of Ruth, except she was still a Moabitess, which right. is not good right. for the old Testament. And like these awkward stories of all these people who are on the outside. And and then you think about the Sermon on the Mount that happens in the book of Matthew. It says, blessed are the meek. Mm -hmm. Yep. Those are the people we're talking about. Let's get the meek on up here. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom is not what you think it is. It's those people that you think don't belong here, but the ones who are actually being welcomed in. Those that you think are in authority are actually the ones who are underneath those that are being brought in. And it's actually about those people who are being brought in. Now, if you're a tax collector, if you're a woman, if you're an orphan, you hear this or you're a foreigner and you hear this and you're like, oh, kingdom's for me. Mm -hmm. 
and and these women they're they're serving and they're and they're and they encounter Jesus and they actually encounter the true gospel, which is that if you're on the outside, you're welcome in. It doesn't matter what your status was. You're welcome in. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter what your education is. You're welcome in. It doesn't matter what your gender is. You're welcome in. I love the fact that the very first form of humanity that Christ redeemed was a woman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was a 12 or 13 year old girl that should have been killed by stones. Mm-hmm. But because of his testimony, his proof of life, what the angels delivered to Joseph and Mary, the very first gender he redeems is a woman. Yeah. One one of the hardest things about that story for Mary, and and may, uh, hopefully this is a piece of encouragement for you. Joseph and Mary walked the rest of their lives with people's shame scorning them when they were the very parents of the Messiah. Yep. For their entire life, and Joseph probably died in shame, and it's likely that Mary did too, with people right. still assuming that she was just had a child out of wedlock. They walked their entire life. Now vindication kept came in heaven, yeah. and it came in the story of the gospel. But like they walk their entire lives to that shame. Right. Yeah. And so like sometimes when we get called to follow God, especially if we're going to actually be a part of his story and changing the world, we're going to walk with shame. But not from him. Never from him. And I guarantee you that if somebody is, is authentically serving God, it doesn't matter their gender, their creed, their their specific characteristics. They may have shame from the world, but it's never from God. God's like... I love that you're willing to step up. You're right. Let's go. Uh, speaking of step up, we had a guest here a couple of weeks ago, Captain Shelby from the Salvation Army. And there's a lady from the Salvation Army by the name of Catherine Booth. Booth. Yes. 1829 to 1890. And she told us a little bit about the Booths, but essentially her and her husband together were pastors. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, the Salvation Army has been ordaining women for a long time. Hundreds of years. I know. And they've been, but what are the Salvation Army, like, what are they mostly known for? Serving their communities. Yeah. The poor, the needy. Evangelical church, but they're known for serving the poor and needy and reaching out to those people on the outside. Like, they have national coverage. Yeah. By secular organizations that help them. Yep. Because they do good work. Yep. Now, I think it's easy. Of course, you could say, I know somebody who serves in Salvation Army and blah, 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 blah. I don't care. We're talking about the organization as a whole. God is blessing and working through. Mm-hmm. To be fair, you can say that about nearly any organization. That right. Is. Yeah. I mean, you could say that about me, depending on which day you talk to me. This <laughs> <laughs> is a true story. Oh, man. But like, it, like her story is just so, is so cool. By the way, I don't know if you actually know that she was a big studier of Finney and John Wesley. Just so that's a no for... Uh, Spencer because he's knows does a lot of study in John Wesley. It's just it's it's so good, you know. Like uh, the story of the Salvation Army and what they're doing is it's just so good. I want to talk about somebody that came up in Southern Baptist culture. So there's a lady by the name of Lottie Moon. Familiar with Lottie Moon? No, actually. Was... So she was uh, 1840 1912. So she was a missionary into China, and so she went into China. Her sister went before her, and then she went. And when she got over there, they were like doing their, their trying to do ministry. It was difficult to share the gospel in China because it's China, you know, and China doesn't love <laughs> Christians. Yeah. So you know what she started doing? She started like teaching people how to knit. And while she was knitting, she would start sharing the gospel yeah. piece by piece. And these women started believing and then their families started believing. And then they'd come to her knitting circles. And so she was proclaiming the gospel and preaching over and over and over and over and over again over knitting needles. Because she took something she knew how to do, and she used it for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm going to take whatever I can do, and I'm going to put it in God's hands and see what he creates. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think that we were, we're like, we need to feed 5,000 people. We should go buy truckloads of food. And God's like, what do you got? Five loaves, two fish? I got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's enough. You bring me what you got, got I'll multiply it. And, but you come and bring me what you got and lay it all down. And then, so she was always messaging back. And Southern Baptists every year, by the way, have a Lottie Moon. It's an offering that for foreign missionaries, because she was always writing back and asking people to uh, to send money. Uh, during the war of 1912, she ended up like she turned her home into a hostel, and she actually fed and and cared for just a ton of people during 1912, getting people to send her money. And eventually, she did uh, get sick and ended up passing away on the mission field. But like her impact was massive, just massive, massive impact. 
the thing I love about her story is it was her whole missions journey in China was so simple. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like you're saying, it wasn't the feeding the 5,000. It wasn't the, the Billy Graham style conferences or that type of stuff. It was the simple, I'm going to enter into your world where you're at yeah. and just join with you in what you're doing and bring Jesus into that space. Yeah. Right. The power that comes with that is huge. Yeah. I want to jump into some different cultures because I want to talk about just like cool things this guy's been doing throughout like different countries. So there's a lady by the name of Paulina Diamini. It's 1858 to 1942. Spread of Christianity in Africa had been happening by British colonies. So she was the daughter of a Zulu war chief who was pledged to be married to another Zulu war chief. Like, in other words, she was being like married away for like a uh, tribe tribal connections and things like that so she had she came in contact with some christian missionaries who shared the message and when the british colonizers actually came in and they provoked a civil war her clan was actually like completely decimated and so then she was left without um going into and being married but she listened to the missionaries she convinced and accepted the work of jesus christ and then she became an evangelist laser focused on the zulu people and started converting the zulu people and then suddenly there's like 14 churches of zulu people because of her work uh, that's going on. And then not only that, she saw a British colonizer that was beating slaves. And she started to preach to him about the gospel. And he stopped beating his workers and became a Christian. And it was a key person in, uh, and then later became a key person in her ministry. And uh, seeing such a change in his life, uh, the people were then more dis- receptive to her message all throughout that region. Because the British colonizer heard the words of God coming from her mouth. By the way, this is a woman preaching to a man, bringing her authority to a man, her authority from God to a man, and changed his life. And because of the change in his life, suddenly this whole region is shifting. Yeah. What we were talking about a few weeks ago is like, if somebody's preaching the good news and people's lives are being changed, like maybe we need to calm down and trying to get them to stop. Yeah. Even if we just disagree. That's such a cool story. Now, I, I'm gonna go, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I'm going to have trouble with this name. It is Sai Su Zhuan. I am not probably saying that correct. But her, she also went by Christiana. 1890 to uh, 1984. So she was in China, and she was the, an unhappy child that was going to become a Buddhist monk. Mm. However, she heard a preacher talk about Jesus at school and decided to put her faith in Jesus, which enraged her family. Which is kind of weird when you think about the fact that they're Buddhists, but you know, whatever. They were enraged. After uh, so, after graduating, she was offered a ton of jobs. She declined them all and decided to go home and witness Jesus to her family. And fifty-five of them, including her mother, eventually came to faith. Fifty-five, because she heard a preacher talk at her school and trusted in Jesus, and then carried that message. She became an apostle, yeah, carrying the message from the kingdom. To her homeland. Yeah. She actually had people coming regularly to hear her preach. Like that the whole region came to like know her during World War II. Hmm. Like, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Like these are cool stories. Like you, like you just don't know. Yeah. One more person I want to talk about before we get into one of my favorite women in like recent history. There is Amy Carmichael. She was 1867-1951. Born in Ireland to devout Scottish Presbyterian parents. Born in Ireland is Scottish parents. Okay. So she converted to Christianity when she was 14. She joined the Christian Missionary Society and served in Japan for 15 months before she found her lifelong vocation. Then she founded the, wow, I'm not going to say that, Dao Navur Fellowship, which provided sanctuary for over 1,000 children whose parents had dedicated their children to the gods and lived in moral and spiritual danger. Now, if you understand dedicated their children to the gods, it likely is that they're going to sacrifice them. Yep. You're like, well, that stuff only happens in the Bible. Well, apparently it was happening in the 1800s, and it still happens in places. Mm-hmm. There, is, there is a book yeah. called Everybody Always by Bob Goff. Mm-hmm. In the back half of his book, he talks about working with a, in a foreign country to get witch doctors arrested because they are sacrificing children for power. But then he also talks about how he went into the jails and started working with the witch doctors, and one came to Christ and led the entire jail to Christ. Mm-hmm. This is not something... That's not happening in the world. It's still happening in the world. Hmm. Yeah. So Carmichael has a couple of books. She has 
uh, one called the Gold Cord and Things as they are mission work in Southern India. She was bedridden for the last two decades of her life, but published 16 additional books before her death in 1951. So she may have been stuck on bed, but she she did some stuff while she was there. Yep. So this next one, I've read multiple books by her. Corey Ten Boone. If you're not familiar with this story, I highly recommend finding a book called The Hiding Place and reading about her. Yeah. So one of my one of my favorite people that she mentions in her book and writes a lot about is her dad. Mm-hmm. Her dad is just it was just a really solid dude, and it's no wonder that they turned out the way they did. I believe her mom died early, but her dad was just he was so solid in his faith, and he did not hold back his daughters from anything. So if you are not familiar with Corey Timboon, do you know enough about her to tell the listeners about her? I'm going to listen to you, and I'll add in things okay. if you leave anything out. So early on in World War II, the Nazi Germany was going through when they were collecting Jewish people. First, they were persecuting them, getting them to pay fines, stealing their property, kicking them out of jobs, putting them into homeless natures, like a lot of things just to persecute Jews all throughout their area. She lived in the Netherlands. So like that area wasn't necessarily, it wasn't as bad as like in Germany, but it was quickly becoming like that because it came under German control. When it got to the point where they were actually starting to herd Jews up to actually send them to the concentration camps to eliminate them. You know, you can read about some of that stuff in like Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he's writing about it. Um, she, she, her dad and, uh, a few, like all of her family set about creating a false room and, uh, almost like a expressway, like you underground railroad kind of thing to, to hide Jews mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to get them out of the country so that they could be saved. Yep. And we're talking like just so many, there was this massive network that they created and they had these really complicated procedures on how to make sure that they weren't being seen. But there's actually like, they had this conversation with an older Jewish man and that he's talking about, they, he said, she says, we just had the greatest time talking because uh, he knew him as, as uh, Adonai and I knew him as Jesus. And so we talked about how much we treasure the Jewish people mm-hmm. as, you know, the people who came before us and gave us our savior. And I just love her heart in all of that. It's interesting that in the story of Cory Timboon, like she eventually gets confronted by a German soldier. And he quotes scripture to her about why he, she shouldn't be lying to him about withholding Jews. As, oh, look, you're not obeying God because you're doing this. I'm not going to lie. When he said that, I had a flashback to people who use the church as a weapon, mm-hmm. use the Bible as a weapon on a frequent basis where they don't understand the heart of the Bible and they instead try to use verses to like hack everybody else up. Mm-hmm. Because if you were familiar with the Bible, if this German soldier was familiar with the Bible, he would know that Jesus says there are weightier portions of the law and that loving God and loving other people mm-hmm. is at the top. And if something is going to make you compromise that, you're going to have to figure out how to walk that out. Okay. I don't have a good answer for you on when that happens or how that happens. I say that you have to trust the spirit of God, but I suspect if you're trying to keep somebody from dying and you have to choose between lying and let them die, I'm okay with you lying. Yeah. And there's probably somebody who's typing on their keyboard right now. No, you have to be obedient to the word of God. I am obedient to the heart of God and to the biblical text. And I believe that you have to look at the greater cause of loving somebody. So Corey Timboon, then eventually she gets sent into a concentration camp. Right. And they smuggle in Bibles and they're reading the Bible and they're talking to people about Jesus and they're converting people left and right. And Bible studies. They're having Bible studies. She is teaching in the midst of watching horror happen. Mm -hmm. She is bringing the Torah to present day. I mean, just... If you hear people talk about her, actually, from the Jewish circles, yeah. they'll call her an Aceous Kyle. What does that mean? It means like an angel. Oh, that's so good. And the only reason why I know that is because of the time that I got to spend working with the Jewish family I nannied for in college while I cared for their four kids and the young mom was battling breast cancer. And, yeah. and her father, uh, the father, 15 years later, sent me a note saying... You know, we regard you as an Aceous Kyle. So good. Like the angels, like the, what we aspire to be when we're entering in Yom Kippur. And, but that's what she's known as. So good. And she was also 
despite all the tragedy, heartache, and just horrible things going around her, she was like the joy of the Lord. Yeah. And it's, it's so to to that point, like the, when she talks about it, she was talking about how they got they had an infestation of lice with them mm-hmm. within their people, and so they got segregated from everybody else. But because they did, they weren't being as closely watched, and so they could talk to people more about Jesus. And she's yeah. like, "Oh Jesus, thank you for thank sending you. us the lice." Mm-hmm. Yes. Now in her story, like you go through, and there's so many things that happen where like divine hand and miracles are happening left and right in the middle of incredible depression and death. Because mm-hmm. let's not understate the Holocaust; it was is it is a colossal event of evil. Yet in the middle of it, there's hope. And God's moving in hope through women, of all things. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through women. Through women. And through men, because, of course, we want to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but specifically today we're talking about women, mm-hmm. right? And her sister ends up passing away in the concentration camp. And do you know that that uh, Corey Tim Boone was released by accident? I don't know that. Oh, yeah. She was released. On, she was actually supposed to be executed, but there was a clerical mistake that she got released instead yeah, we call that clerical mistake Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, so her sister had a dream and she described this place where she said, because if we ever get out of here, we're going to have to help people learn how to love the people who oppress them. Mm-hmm. I, I need you to hear that. Mm-hmm. We need to te- have people love the people that oppress them. These German soldiers who are logging you up, beating you, starving you, trying to kill you. We need to figure out how to love them because Jesus loves them. And so she had this dream and she describes this house and this property that like her sister does. And when, when Corey is out, she goes back and she goes back to her, her homeland and then the war ends. And eventually she is being led by the Lord and she finds this property and it's exactly as her sister described. And they open up this location and she starts inviting people who were in concentration camps, like that need a place to heal. Mm-hmm. to find Christ. And then, of course, then they, she's tapped to write like the book about her experience decades later, you know, and then talk about what happened. And she, she starts writing, she's traveling. And in one of her travels, she's approached by a guy, a German fellow afterwards, who was one of the officers <laughs> that was beating her and, and was responsible for her sister's death, who became a Christian. And I love what she says. She says, in my humanity, I could never have shook that man's hand. But I'm more than my humanity. I'm filled with the love of Christ and the spirit of Christ. And through that, I can recognize him as a brother. Amen. And then she traveled all over the place. I mean, we're decades of work, multiple books. I actually love, she has a book called Tramp for the Lord. It's so good. But where she talks about like, like just trying to get places and preach and they didn't want to let her go because she was a woman. And then she's, she's like, she would show up places and they're like, why are you here? She says, because God told me to be here. And then like, right then a situation would open up and it's like prophetic event after prophetic event back from prophetic event. If, by the way, if you read this book and you're like, this is crazy, it is crazy. God was doing crazy stuff in the life of, of Corey Tim Boone mm-hmm. because she was obedient. She listened and she obeyed mm-hmm. and like, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at this point have been impacted by her ministry, mm-hmm. by her teachings, by her story, by her witness. Mm-hmm. Like she, and, and yes, at times she preached, but like she was everything that like we would want in a minister. Mm-hmm. If you look at a pastor's heart, Corey Toombin had it. Yeah. I do have one more story about a Muslim. It's a lady, and I'll say the name wrong, so just please forgive me. Bilkis Shaikh, 1926 through 1997, right? I was a wife of a high-ranking government official in Pakistan, gave her life to Christ in 1966, was born in Pakistan to an elite Muslim family, and never fully embraced her family's religions. Curious about Jesus, she read about the Quran, and she asked her Christian chauffeur to bring her a Bible. At Romans 9.25-26 caught her attention. She approached two local American missionaries who answered her questions and explained the gospel. And soon after, she experienced a series of dreams and visions that confirmed her decision to convert. News of her conversion reached her family, who considered her a traitor and an infidel and shunned her. And after she was threatened and her home torched, she fled to the United States where she began speaking about her experience and love for Jesus in churches. Years later, her health declined, and she returned to Pakistan, where she died in 1997. 
I just, I love the whole thing of dreams and visions and God just meeting us where we're at. Mm. You know, there is, there is another story and I forget the lady's name. I have both of her books, but it's a really hard name, but she was, she survived the Rwanda massacre. Are you familiar with the Rwanda massacre? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think of the name. Yeah. She goes to the story, my, my favorite parts in the book and just like testimony to her faith in Christ because she has seen humanity as worst because in a lot of ways, it was similar to the Holocaust, except that you had neighbors literally cutting each other down and thinking that they're doing good. And like, even the people who were hiding her began to resent her over time. When they finally came in, when they finally came in and, and liberated Rwanda and stopped the massacre from going on, they started rounding up these people who were actually doing the killing. And one of the officers invited her in and gave her a gun to shoot the guy who had been like, killing people in her in her village and instead she forgave him and said that jesus this is what jesus would want me to do for you and that you have done she said you have done monstrous things but you are not a monster you are loved and you are forgiven these are the kind of people who push the gospel forward this is the kind of people god calls us to be these women teach us more about how to walk in faith than a lot of sermons that I've heard, mm. right? So what what is the point of all this? It's not that, it's not just these, we're not trying to hold up these stories where you start worshiping these people. Mm -hmm. we're, trying to, we're trying to point a clear picture that God has been working through women all throughout history. Mm -hmm. And he has risen up leaders. He's risen up apostles. He's risen up preachers. He's risen up evangelists. He's risen up mothers, that are about forwarding the kingdom of God and everything that they do. And their gender has never been the issue except when man made it the issue. Yeah. It's never been an issue with God. It's always been an issue with man. And usually from people who are more focused on their religion than their faith. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things with all these stories mm -hmm. is you have these women who are saying, okay, we're not going to listen to the status quo. We're going to listen to Jesus. And we're going to go where he calls us to go. Some of them are, we're going to go where he calls us to go. Some of them are like just life circumstances, like Corey Tamboon just thrown in prison, mm -hmm. like thrown in concentration camp at some point. She didn't choose to go there, but when she was there, she said, we're going to bring Bibles in mm -hmm. and we are going to proclaim the gospel. We're going to find ways to glorify Jesus and bring him into the situation. And so to have that heart where it's no matter where I'm at in life, I'm going to be following after the Lord. As Paul says, am I here to serve man or am I here to serve God? Yeah. He's like, yeah, then I, every time I read that, I think Paul's being a little sarcastic. <laughs> he's definitely being sarcastic. And, you know, he's like, <laughs> I'm this rhetorical question just because I can. Um, but when you have these women who are doing that, we've seen, and there's, tons of other stories throughout history where women have pushed the envelope on them. Mm -hmm. so, but it's not it's not because they're doing it out of a social justice cause or anything like mm -hmm. that. Like they're doing it because the Lord has called them to do it. Responding to the call. Responding to the call mm -hmm. the Lord's put on their life. And then and to the men who are supporting them in a lot of cases. And not every case because there's lots of examples where it's not the case. But to the men who are supporting them in those cases, they're not doing that for shame either. They're doing that to support the call that's put on their lives. Yeah. So good. When thinking about this, because I think sometimes the church can take this issue and turn it into what's our position, what's our stance on it, and turn it into a posturing thing. When it's when really the heart behind it is, what's the call that the Lord's put on your, on your life? Yeah. But one of the things with women in ministry that I always push back on a little bit when people are like, should they or should they not be? I was like, here's the reality. If you say yes to Jesus, you are called into ministry. It's just a matter of what that looks like in your life. hundred percent. Right. right. So if you say yes to Jesus and you're a woman, you are called into ministry. Mm -hmm. You are called to be part of, you're called to be part of your church. You're called to be part of your body. You're called to serve your community. What that looks like is going to vary. Whether it's specifically pastoral ministry like Sarah, here that's one thing, or whether the Lord's put on your call that you're going to be the best mother possible right or whether or whatever that is or whether the lord said hey there's this place that needs jesus you're going to go into that place and to be there right those are all 
aspects of you serving in ministry. Yeah. And so we can't just boil it. Like, well, lots of just like to boil it down till it's church ministry, referring to the building, the four walls that we come into on Sunday. Yeah. I think a lot of that comes down though, is like when you're trying to exclude people, like the more narrow you can make it, the easier it is. Mm-hmm. Like the more you can justify it. Yeah. And that's, that comes back to like our conversation about, are we unified or are we, are we uh, uniformed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're not going to be uniform, but we are going to be unified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think we got to start rephrasing that. Yeah. We got, I agree. We got to start being open about that rephrasing. I mean, like if we are serving in ministry, it is our life, our livelihood, everything about us. We are bringing Jesus into the places of the world everywhere we go. It's so good. 24 seven. Yep. And so to say women can't serve in ministry, if you're viewing it from the context of her bringing Christ to the world, you're saying they can't have breasts. Right. And that is just downright insulting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, I think as this conversation continues to be had, it's so important that we're talking about this history because there's going to be some little girl, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, even the fact that, you know, I've got four and you have one and, and just already, you know, Spencer, I know you can speak to how the world views women as you've now seen it through the lens of being a dad. Mm-hmm. And I think what's so important is that men need to also see the partnership that Jesus is inviting them to and making sure that their sisters aren't silenced. Mm. And I think that I, I feel for the men just as much as I feel for the women that are saying yes to the call when they know it's coming at a cost. I mean, I can I could write you chapters of the cost that it's been just for me. This is so, it's so hard. And so, you know, I don't want to discount the fact that there are brothers that are also carrying the weight because they're choosing to speak against the norm, because they're choosing to say, no, my sister has been given a gift from the Holy Spirit. She's got to use it, like, yeah. in whatever capacity that is. And and I'm thankful that, Spencer, you even said that our role in advancing the kingdom of God is advancing the gospel story of bringing hope to the world. And I want to speak to the mom that's sitting there listening to this, that you know, found this podcast and she's knee deep in diapers and the home and the grocery shopping. And I was there for 12 years. And I remember thinking, this is it. (laughs) This is what I'm going to be doing is the mundane of running a house and being chauffeur and chef and maid and nurse. And, you know, the list could go on. And I don't think that God could bring me to a season of being able to be a shepherd to a congregation until he had to show me what it meant to be a shepherd to five little souls. So good. And there are times that I just laugh because I'm looking at an adult thinking, this is a tantrum that my two-year-old could have thrown and you're throwing it 10 times better. But I really have to look back to that, that in those 12 years of the crucible of being a stay-at-home mom and and I was already fitting into society's space. Society wants me home. Society wants me not contributing. And it's such a gift now to be on the other side, to realize that it was in those formative years of being a mother, learning that my ministry was how I was loving my children in the midst of defiance and autonomy how am I loving my husband in career changes and going back to school how am I loving my teenagers as they're breaking away from the control I don't I can't shepherd a congregation if I don't know how to shepherd my home and I think uh one of the one of the things I want to you said this but and it's definitely what society kind of pushes if you're a stay-at-home mom like you are absolutely contributing I would, so I would just like to say that Tara's job is way harder than mine. Oh, hands down. It's so much harder than mine. Like, I feel for, I feel for her, your spouses because I'm like, wow, I get to sit here and hang out. But I know yeah. what's happening at home with those busy bodies. Yeah, I actually just, I got a text message before we started this, is that Leland had a bag of potato chips. And it's so windy, it got blown away. And he lost his potato chips and is crying. 
and for Leland and his chips. Yeah, it's you know, a big that, deal. that was a really big it's deal. Big deal. <laughs> so I want to once again stress as we're landing this plane, these were a few stories. You should go read some books. Like there, there are countless stories that, and even like the people we talked about, you go read some books on these people. Like they're real living and breathing disciples that are, have just been consistently like throughout the history all over the country. We talked about Australia or not Australia. We talked about Ireland. We talked about China. We talked about Pakistan. Like we're all over the place, Germany and God is doing a work. And I specifically didn't focus on America because there's a lot of stories that we're familiar with here. Mm-hmm. And we need to hear, like, well, there's more than just us. Yeah. And God's been doing a lot. Also, uh, America's only been around a couple hundred years. So there's a lot more church history than that. Yeah. Bad. So with that, with that being said, next week we're going to, we are actually going to dive into the controversy. We're going to take the four verses that people use. And yes, I did say that correctly. Four verses that people use. Uh, to discredit women as as uh, ministers, and we're going to talk about them and why they might not mean what you think they mean, and then we're going to talk about like how do we actually support, elevate, and encourage people to embrace the call regardless of their gender. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, sounds fun. See you guys next week. Okay, bye. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Love and Context. We hope you enjoyed this engaging conversation and gained valuable insights into the powerful message of love within the Bible. We'd love to hear from you and continue the conversation. Connect with us by sending us your questions, thoughts, and suggestions to loveandcontext at gmail.com. We greatly appreciate your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Stay connected with us on social media for updates, behind-the-scenes content, and additional resources. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook at Love and Context. Don't forget to hit that follow button to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join our growing community. Thank you for being part of the Love and Context family. Remember, love is at the heart of it all. Until next time, keep seeking wisdom, embracing love, and living out your faith in the context of today's world. Stop laughing. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to cut when you guys go from doing this to <laughs> like that? Oh, man. Please say something, because otherwise it's going to cut together like me just talking forever. Ben's podcast with his friends.